We've gotten so much crap for not being PLG. And you know what? I don't regret my decision at all. (laughs) Some of the best startup ideas come from founders trying to solve a problem they've experienced themselves. That's the story of today's guest, Alexa Grable, the CEO and co-founder of Pocus. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where we tell the growth stories of the revenue leaders behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Kragov. It was only three years ago that Alexa Grable was working in a sales operations role at Data Miner. She realized how much untapped value was sitting in product and customer data. And after going back to school to complete an MBA at Stanford in 2021, Alexa co-founded Pocus, a revenue data platform that helps go-to-market teams surface insights from their product usage data. Pocus has ridden the product-led sales wave, earning $23 million in funding and landing big-name SaaS customers like Webflow, Loom, and Miro only two years since its founding. In today's episode, we start with Pocus's founding story and early go-to-market strategy before going deep into product-led growth advice. Even if you're not into PLG, there's tons of gold sales advice in this episode. I hope you enjoy the show. I'd love to start with the founding story of Pocus. From my understanding, you worked in sales operations at Dataminer and then went to Stanford Business School. And then somewhere along the way, you started working on Pocus. Can you kind of talk us through the, the origin story? Of course. So... You're right, Alex. I was at Dataminer um, before founding Pocus, and I was building out a lot of the sales ops infrastructure and foundations. And when I was there, something that was a, a big struggle was that there was data everywhere. We had data in different systems like BI tools, CRM, reps had their own spreadsheets, admin, and I was constantly trying to hack together this data. And I ended up hacking together things in a very not perfect way to give sales and customer success teams access to data. So fast forward, went back to school. I went to Stanford Business School where I met my co-founder and can dive deeper into that. And we spent three months just doing customer research with sales ops teams to really understand, do other people feel the same pains as I do? And really started with this vision for how do you unlock data for go-to-market teams, which then we narrowed in even deeper to this wedge of product-led sales um, because product-led growth companies have so much data that sales teams need to interact with. So that's about the five-year journey in 30 seconds. <laughs> love it. Love it. I'd love to talk about how you met your your co-founder because yeah. you know, he's the technical one, you're the business one. And like even my own experience, I feel like I spent a few years trying to figure out, okay, who could actually help me build build my crazy ideas? What was it like kind of meeting Isaac and trying to build a product with him? It was a funny story. So um, and a little bit of the, the classic Stanford story, I would say. Uh, and a lot of it came, came down to luck. So I was in the business school and he was in the engineering school. And so a lot of the business school and engineering schools do like co-founder dating, essentially, to figure out who they can partner with. And particularly for this class called Lean Launchpad, where you have to apply with a co-founder and they help you incubate your idea. So you can think about it as almost like YC in a class at Stanford. And so we applied to that class together. And I probably talked to like 15 engineers. He talked to, I think we joke, my entire GSB class. Uh, he talked to all of my roommates at the time. And I was just like, I got to work with Isaac. He is incredible. He already started two companies before this. We really vibed and it just felt like an awesome fit. So I just remember 
absolutely selling him and doing everything the hardest sell I ever had to do to get him to agree to partner with me and for this class at Lean Launchpad. And then it really from there, we said, you know, during this class, we're going to see if this is something we want to do together for the long term. And um, it ended up being that it was. So that was the origin story of Isaac and I. Very cool. And then, so yeah, what did you do during the kind of Lean Launchpad class? Like, were the, yeah, what were their milestones? Did you have to kind of build a product by, by yeah. the end of it? How did that work? It was a really great class in terms of teaching you how to rapidly experiment with different ideas and having a hypothesis-driven approach to product building. So every single week, we had a different hypothesis that we wanted to test in the world of sales ops. And so we would pick a hypothesis and then throughout the week, we would do 10 to 20 customer interviews and say, do we want to lean into this hypothesis more or do we want to throw it out and start over? So through the, let's say, 10 to 15 weeks that Lean Launchpad was, we probably went through three main product ideas within this concept of unlocking data for go-to-market teams. Um, And what it looked like is as you get kind of pulled into a direction from these customer interviews, it turns into, hey, do you want to be a design partner? Do you want to keep building together? So what started as kind of a series of hypotheses we ended the class with a very clear understanding of what focus will be. No product built yet, but more the idea, Figma mocks. That's really where also our seed fundraising started as well. Very cool. And so, yeah, what was that original kind of idea that you came out of that, that class with? Well, we started with a bunch of ideas. And actually, the original idea was the product-led sales platform. So we weren't calling it product-led sales in that class. That took a couple months after. But this idea that PLG companies or product-led growth companies have so much data around how users engage with their product to inform the sales team. So really, the idea from that class is pretty similar to what we spent the first two years building at Pocus with some windy ways there of the exact features to build and the exact persona to target. But it was what Pocus is today. I'm sure it evolved a lot, but you still have stuck with kind of like the original conception of things like maybe in what ways has it changed or what things maybe were wrong about your original assumption as you started building? Yeah. So, well, I'll say in those 10 weeks of Lean Launchpad, the class, we touched every idea in sales and sales ops. So that was the windy path, 100%. It wasn't just like we miraculously came up with this idea. Um, So there was a lot of pivoting then, but I think it's really powerful and helpful to pivot before you write any code. So we would pivot our ideas just through customer interviews and Figma mocks. I'd say for now, in terms of where focus is today versus where we started out, what's interesting is our vision has always stayed clear. But the path to get to that vision is still kind of how do we prioritize each thing? So we are starting to expand beyond just product-led sales, right? We don't just serve sales teams. We also serve marketing and customer success and starting to serve use cases even out of PLG. So I'll say the thing that has shifted is kind of the personas and use cases that we're targeting with this vision of unlocking data that goes beyond just sales teams and product-led growth companies. Gotcha. And then, so yeah, who are you targeting now? Is it mainly sales ops and rev ops and analysts and sort of those those types of folks? Yeah. So we st- our primary buyer is actually sales. So we'll work with sales teams at PLG companies. So some of our customers like Asana, Miro, Webflow, Loom, where those sales leaders say, hey, sales reps, you need to go generate a ton of pipeline. And we're sitting on all of these great self-serve users 
go figure out where are the opportunities that are most ripe for conversion from the free plan to the paid or upsell or conversion. So that's still our primary market. RevOps definitely plays a big part in both the evaluation of focus as well as the implementation. Budget and decision makers is typically the CRO. Yeah, it's interesting. We've had a similar experience with with Doc. Like I thought like RevOps would be like a main buyer and I was doing outbound to them and and really trying to target them. But it was always it's always been like the functional leaders is where we've had the most success. And then the RevOps is kind of like the team that can either like accelerate a deal or just block a deal completely. Like oh, yeah. we've talked with a couple of bigger teams and then the RevOps is like, can you integrate with these seven systems? Or we're like, nope, not yet. And then even if we got the sales team on board, it kills the deal immediately. So yeah, that's been a big learning on on my end of just like the role that they they play within the org. A hundred percent. And I came from RevOps and it still surprises me because what my biggest surprise is RevOps looks so different at different companies. There are some that are very kind of Salesforce admin experts, super technical, can implement. Some are treated as the CRO's chief of staff and is are way more strategic. And it's you kind of have to adjust your pitch and the way you work with RevOps teams based on how they're structured as an organization and what their goals are. Yeah, it's it's a super interesting dynamic. And I think one of the things that's really interesting with POCUS is that oftentimes like the alternative is kind of like a DIY solution, right? Like stitching together CRMs and data warehouses and BI tools and, and all those different things. That's like actually what we're doing now at, at Doc. And it's like, you know, it works okay. But like, I'm curious how you think about selling against kind of like that DIY solution that a lot of companies have. Yeah, there are pros and cons. <laughs> so um, you're absolutely right that our main competitor tends to be DIY, which is what you're building is what I built internally previously. The pros of that is it's pretty easy to go in there and say, this is why Pocus is a lot better than what you have today, because we have a full team dedicated to this full time. And we are just constantly iterating with best practices. And your team doesn't need to have 10 engineers building this or whatever it is. Um, so that like the there's a clear kind of understanding that focus is better than DIY, um, as well as we don't have to compete with that many other options. Typically, the negative is there's because we're a new category. There's not typically a line item for budget, and so it's really hard to say you know we're gonna what we're replacing is the hours spent of your internal team building this, but it's not like we're taking budget away from another tool. And especially in a market downturn, that can be really, really hard where people say we don't have new budget. It's just going to be uh, ripping and replacing other budgets. So we've had to do some creative things there, but it's still definitely a learning experience and probably the same thing you feel with creating a new category. It involves a lot of education and a lot of just like continuing to talk about the category over and over and over again until you see that line item, which we're starting to see. Uh, but it definitely, it's definitely not easy. Let's talk about that education because I think you've Pocus has done a phenomenal job kind of leading this product led sales movement and community led growth. And I know you have a big thriving Slack community with, with thousands of members. Like, like what made you start down that, that path and kind of, you know, what lessons have, have you learned along the way? Well, thank you for that. I remember calling you before we started any of this. We got introduced, I think, through Jack. I said, who are the best marketing people ever? And he said, you. And I remember calling you and you giving me advice on all of this. So, you oh, know, that's, that, nice. that's how I knew it. That's not how I knew to do everything. Not true, but thank you. <laughs> you know, I, it was very helpful. So, um, 
I loved always starting communities. I, I ran, I like at data miner, I started the women's community. I started for my GSB class, a fund for my class, which included a community. So I always loved that concept. Um, and when I started focus, I, it wasn't like, do we build a community or not? It was kind of just, we need to build a community. And the reason being product led sales was a new thing and no one had the answers. And so it was, and I wasn't going to have all the answers. I knew that I wasn't going to be the only person who had a perspective on product led sales. I needed to build it with other people. And so we found that by creating a first the Slack community with folks that are go to market or sales folks at PLG businesses, we can start the dialogue there. And then that extends to content and other category creation kind of campaigns or channels to build this world of product-led sales with the experts by our side. So let's go deep on, on product-led sales because, uh, yeah, you're an expert. It's something I'm dealing with right now at Doc, and, and I would love to, to learn more and pick your brain about it. And so, I mean, maybe we start with like a really broad question. Like, how do you think about the role of sales and kind of a PLG motion and maybe what makes it different than, you know, more of like a traditional kind of sales-led motion? Yeah, to simplify it, I think there are two main differences. The seller at a PLG business versus a non-PLG business tend to be way more data-driven. And they are looking at who are the existing users on our product and how can I use information on how they are engaging with the product to inform how I want to reach out to them to be way more personalized. The second thing I would say is they sell, sellers in a PLG business tend to lead with the value and lead with how can I help you get more value out of the product rather than traditional sales businesses saying, this is what our product does. There's this hypothetical value that you can get. Um, we're going to show it to you after you purchase. So I'd say really it comes down to being more data-driven and intentionally leading with value. And is, is I've heard you also talk about like the sales assist role. It sounds like yeah. that's kind of what you're describing, right? Like, how do you think about that role? And then what, you know, as a sort of emerging trend and are companies actually hiring for, for that sales assist role? So the sales assist role, to my understanding, started at Dropbox. They had a sales assist title. And then there were also product advocates at Atlassian. So those two were pretty from my understanding, pretty similar. And now lots of other companies are hiring, whether you call it sales assist, product specialist, product advocate. And what these roles are, in my mind, is a mix of sales, but also support, but also a kind of traffic controller of information. And so what I mean by that is as a sales assist person, I'm reaching out not to aggressively sell you on the product, but to say to the self-serve users, how, how are you doing? How can I get you more value? What questions do you have? Any blockers? Have you tried this other product feature? And what that seller can do is either A, help support them and answer any questions, maybe debug some things that they might have questions about. B, learn from them and funnel that information back to marketing, back to product. Or C, they can say, all right, this is an opportunity that we really think is right to convert to a paid contract or to expand. So I'm going to introduce them to my account executive. So it's this hybrid role that I think only really works at PLG businesses, but I have seen it popping up more and more. And how do you think about kind of like, I don't know, the different types of personas that are signing up to use the app? Like with with Doc, right? We have yeah. you know sales reps, end users signing up. Then there's like the VP of sales, and there's the rev ops, and there's a ton of like 
noise in between. Like I would love to kind of maybe go like through each of those different personas, like with, with the end user, how do you, you know, if a sales rep is signing up and starting to use something like, yeah, how do you use them in a way to actually get like a big, big deal? Like how do you sort of support them in that process? Yeah, there's a lot of different, we call playbooks that you can run if you're a PLG company. So like you just mentioned, if you have a sales rep product and you want to help equip them with the information they need to then champion this internally, that could be one playbook. Or maybe you see that someone is an admin and signed up and you want to proactively reach out to them to see how everything's going. Do they want to add more seats? How can we help you? Um, there's a lot of common ways to do it. At lots of companies, we see a workspace consolidation playbook where um, let's use Notion, for example. They may have... Um, and they're selling to Apple. Apple might have a hundred different Notion workspaces within that domain. And you need to roll that up into one cohesive enterprise license. So there's a lot of different avenues you can take. I don't think that there's one clear path for every PLG company. I really think it depends on who your end users are and what, when and how they get value from the product and what the sales cycle looks like. Like developers, for example, if you're selling a dev tool product, they will never answer you. <laughs> so you need to figure out how to go above them to the VPN or CTO. So I think it really depends on the type of product that you have and the, the go-to-market motion that you find works best. And so when you get in touch with like that VP, whether it's like the VP of engineering or CRO or, or whoever it is, like how do you think about kind of presenting the case? Is it just saying, hey, you have... 50 users using this product, like time to buy it. Like, how do you sort of think about building that case and, and using kind of that momentum that you that mm -hmm. you already have in, in the product to, to kind of convince them to, to purchase? Yeah. So I don't think it's that dissimilar from a traditional sales business case. The only difference is you have more proof points and you have the ability to build an even more robust business case. Instead of going in saying, this is the ROI we think will happen when you implement our product, we can say, hey, we have already helped you do X, Y, Z as proven by these 100 users on the product to date. We can help you get even more value when we you know, upgrade you to the enterprise contract. And we're also going to offer X, Y, Z features that don't have, that aren't available today. So it is something that, again, I've seen every company do it differently. Like I think... Slack in the early days, it felt very seamless. It was just, oh, there's lots of users. We should probably let IT know so that they don't get dinged and we can just pay like IT tax for the enterprise plan. I think Slack is an amazing product and not the same as most other PLG businesses. So it really depends on kind of, again, who your buyer is. Is your buyer the CTO, the CIO, the CRO, or the CPO? That's going to all look really different too. And I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on like, when's the right time to kind of hire a sales team in a, in a product led business? Cause like, I know, I think Stripe added it pretty later on. And I think Twilio even added it like post IPO and it did wonders in the business. Like as soon as they added a sales team, it accelerated. And then Slack, I think famously was like, we're never hiring a sales team. And then yeah. did, and it did, and it worked really well. And um, yeah, I don't know. How do you think about that? Cause I feel like people are realizing sales can actually help and hiring a little bit earlier, but maybe I'm off on that. It's so funny. I feel like there's this like cockiness that companies have when they're like, we got so far without sales. Like <laughs> we're amazing. We're the best. And honestly, <laughs> every company you hire sales at a different time. Um, and it really depends on what is your product and what are your company goals. So if you are a company that says, you know, we have unlimited runway, we're not in a competitive market. We sell to developers. 
I would say stay PLG forever <laughs> or as long as you can. You have, or you're close to being profitable. You don't need to accelerate revenue because you don't need to fundraise anytime soon. Um, or if like the founder doesn't think that's something, developers don't want to talk to salespeople and you can build the foundation of self-serve and invest more in that than salespeople. Great. But what about on the other hand, if you're a PLG product, but you're in a hyper-competitive market, you find that your end users get blocked often on the journey and you only have two years of I would say go hire a salesperson and figure out how you can accelerate that revenue and pull it forward and figure out, put a human in there to figure out what the roadblocks are in the customer journey so that you can make sure that you are you know, constantly iterating. So there are so many people that say, you know, a PLG company isn't PLG if they hire salespeople before 10 million ARR. I think that's all BS. I don't know if I can curse on this. Uh, I think it's really... <laughs> You hire a salesperson, which when it makes sense for your product, your ARR goals and your company vision. Makes sense. Yeah. And I think of it going back to like the sales assist role. It's like you people, and we've learned this with doc too. It's like, you know, getting people to adopt doc is less even about how can they learn how to like click the buttons within the platform. It's like helping them achieve their outcomes, helping yeah. them kind of set up, you know, an onboarding plan and in our case. And, and, you know, there's like a little bit of like babysitting along the way where it's like, Hey, pay attention. Come on. You, you know, that onboarding is really important. Like you got to follow through kind of the, the setup process. And as soon as we started being a little bit more like handholdy and being more proactive with people, we noticed like our revenue started, started to go up, but you know, and it's an, it's an interesting, interesting balance, awesome. especially in the early days. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious, like when's the right time for sales to get involved in, in the product Led motion and kind of like jump in and reach out to a customer. And I know Pocus helps a lot with like PQLs. I assume there's different, yeah. you know, for, for, um, you know, different companies have, have different definitions. And we've tried everything at Doc from like as soon as they sign up, reach out right away versus like letting them, you know, do their thing in there and then reaching out as they hit kind of like a, a specific milestone. Like, what do you typically see? What do you recommend? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that? So I'm going to sound like a broken record because it really depends on the product and the company, but I will say, the one thing that people get wrong is that they have one PQL and they say, I'm going to have my sales reps reach out at this one time for this one type of PQL and that's it. The reality is you're going to have so many different types of PQL, PQA, triggers, signals. I don't care what you call it. Um, I, a PQL is a product qualified lead. So meaning there's going to be different parts of the customer journey where sales should reach out. And so what you might find is sales should reach out the first 30 days of using the product because you find that that's typically the aha moment and when they're ready to invite others onto the product. Or maybe you want to reach out a year after they're using the product. Or maybe you want to reach out after they are a paying customer and you see them inviting a bunch of others because maybe there's an expansion potential. All of those would be different PQL or PQA triggers that I would want to know about and route to the different team accordingly. So earlier in the funnel, it might go to an SDR because you find that someone is on their first 30 days and you think there's potential to convert them to a paying contract. Another type of PQL might go to account manager where you think there's seat expansion potential. And so it really is a series of rapid experimentation and iterating to figure out what those PQL should be and then what the messaging or, or to those leads should look like. And from my understanding of Pocus, I mean, this is what your platform helps people do, right? <laughs> like map out all of their different PQLs. And then I think there's like plays and playbooks, right? Around reaching yeah. out. Like, is, is that generally right? How do you think about exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. We like to use the word playbooks. We have the concept of PQLs and PQAs. I like to 
ensure people are thinking about this in terms of lots of different ways to have a trigger in an action. So in POCUS, you can run a series of playbooks, which are saying, all right, this lead should be surfaced to this type of seller. And we should give them this type of context and insight about the account, the user, the workspace to then recommend a certain action to take. So that is the workflow and the insight that Focus provides. Very cool. And then how do you think about your own growth? Because I think the yeah. funny thing about Focus, right, is like you sell PLG products, but you're not a PLG company yourself, at least at least not yet. So like, how you're do you think about right. that decision and how have you gained, gained traction you know, in, in, in the early days? So we've gotten so much crap for not being PLG. And you know what? I don't regret my decision at all (laughs) because the reality is we want to be PLG one day and we want to be self-serve one day. But where we are as a company and how technical our product is, meaning that it hooks up to a data warehouse and we need to get the security review and sign-off from data teams. And we're starting with upmarket customers. We made the intentional decision that right now we're a two-year-old startup. We need to be so hyper-focused on very specific ICP and focus on really what they need before actually going down market and building where that is where the uh, the PLG product will come into play. I'll also say that in this new category, um, we do spend a lot of time kind of advising our customers with services on how to best write a product-led sales motion. Um, and so I'll say because we made this intentional decision of being more consultative to our customers and focusing on our market and getting our data integrations really secure and seamless, we've been able to beat out competition. So we, we got all the, the kind of hate for not being PLG ourselves, even though we will be one day, but I don't regret it because it's what helped us win in the market. No, I think it, it, it's super smart. And like, you know, Doc, when I started the company, I was like, I want to be PLG. You know, I just want to make money while I'm sitting on the couch watching TV. You know, I don't <laughs> want a big, you know, big SMB sales team. And, you know, we've got flipped back and forth between like, you know, signing up on the website. I think right now, if you look, you know, it's just scheduled demo and then we'll flip back to PLG because the problem is though, it's just, and we, and the product is super involved in the sale, regardless of whether you talk to us first or the product is your first experience. But as we've been fiddling and changing so much with them in the product, it just introduces this other variable, this other first impression from the end user. And like when there was moments where it's like, oh God, we have a lot to improve in the product, I would would turn off kind of, you know, the free trial side of things because I I wanted to be able to explain away the things that we needed to improve and, and be able to have a conversation with folks. So yeah, it's something we've been experimenting a lot with. And it's not easy to get get right, especially when you're still figuring out like, okay, what is the, the core product supposed, supposed to be? I'll also say I do think PLG and product-led sales is a spectrum. And I think there's very self-serve... Like you think of Slack at one extreme and you think of you know Salesforce as the other extreme. There are in-betweens. Uh, this product can be adopted on my own, but really to go viral, it needs some human nudging or whatever that looks like. And so I think people become obsessed with being one or the other. But the reality is you need to build what is most impactful, impactful and valuable and efficient go-to-market motion for what you're selling and who the buyers are. So we both sell... I believe you also sell to go-to-market teams. Um, like For us, selling to salespeople or selling to HR people at Lattice sometimes it can be hard to be product-led. And the reason being, those types of personas love talking to people. But again, if you're selling to a PM, they probably are going to want to hack it together by reading documentation on their own. So it really depends on all your ICP as well. 
Yeah, at Lattice, I always, me and Jack would always debate. I always wanted to make it a PLG product, especially like the one-on-one tool. I was like, okay, managers could could adopt and yeah. things, but we never we never made it like that. And Jack was right. Jack was steadfast in saying, okay, you know, this is a performance management program. It is a tops-down implementation. No employee is going to sign up for Lattice and be like, I want to run a performance review by myself. You know, it's like it is a company-wide initiative, and that allowed us to, you know accelerate our sales velocity and get bigger deals and stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah um, Jack, you were right if you're, if you're listening to this. Uh, but yeah, that was something that was interesting to watch. And, and the cost, I guess, was like Lattice had to build a big SMB sales team. And that was maybe expensive. But you know what? It proved right. out to be like a good training ground for like younger reps to go move up into mid-market and, and beyond. So yeah, I don't know. Trade-offs is, is, is always exist. Yeah. And if you go on the, I might be wrong about this, but if you go on the Lattice website, it looks like there are lower tier pricing plans where you can kind of try out the product and then upgrade throughout your um, experience with the product. And to me, that's kind of being hybrid. Maybe PLG isn't the first thing on their mind, but they have launched something so folks can try before they buy. And there is ways to use product usage data to then inform the upsell motion. So to me, it's like Lattice is clearly very different than Slack. But to me, Lattice is also clearly very different than Salesforce. Yep. No, I think that that is exactly right. And then even in the sales motion, you know, they would, you know, there would sometimes be a pilot, right? But it was a structured pilot or there would be like access to a sandbox account and things like that. So yeah, it's like, there's a spectrum, right, between sales led and product led. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about. All right, let's take a, a quick quick break away from product led conversation. I'm sure we'll come right back to it. But um, I'd love to talk about fundraising because, like, you've raised yeah. over 20 million bucks, I think, from some amazing investors like First Round and Kotu and Jack and and many others. And so, like, what has that experience been like? I think this was your first time raising money. Yeah. So we started. Pocus and right away we raised our seed. And then a year later, we raised our Series A, which was a year ago. Raising a seed in 2021 is really different than raising a seed right now. Um, so our seed round was really out of GSB. One of our professors gave us a term sheet actually out of that class. And that inspired us to say, like, oh, should we be fundraising? Should we be getting money? Should we actually take this thing to the next level? And that's really what it's kind of motivated us to raise a seed. A year later, we um, raised our Series A more because we got interest from the market and I saw what was coming. So we raised, I think we were Kotu's like last investment for a really long time. We raised like June last year. So it was right before and we wanted to kind of give ourselves that runway. Um, I'd be happy to talk about kind of the experience of fundraising, our strategy, what it looked like. Um, is there something particular you'd be interested to learn about? Yeah, I'd be curious like... Yeah. Well, did you run like a real process? Did you just meet with different and yeah, did you have investor friends that you knew and then can kind of work through them? Like, yeah, how did you sort of approach kind of the fundraising strategy? Really good question. So we, it's funny, I feel like once you start talking to a couple VCs, there must be this like VC secret community and they all talk to each other. And so then the second you talk to five, it sounds like they all know each other and have a strong perspective on the space. Either they love you or they hate you. For us, we did run a process. We talked to probably a dozen funds and then narrowed it down and got a couple term sheets and then went with first round. I'll say the one thing that we did that was interesting is we took on... Right now, I have probably 100 plus angel investors. 
So we brought on a lot of executives of SaaS businesses. Um, so everyone, you know, CEO of Zoom and DBT and the CEO of Notion, um, Jack. And that has been awesome for us, I'll say. Potentially, sometimes uh, even more helpful than... I mean, I won't say more helpful than traditional VCs because mine are amazing. But what I've heard of from other VCs, um, it's been an unlock for us to be able to tap into these folks' network, but also just learn how they went through the experience of founding their companies. Um, and we actually left both rounds open. We left like a million dollars in both rounds to have folks invest even after the round. So when you meet really interesting people, they're like, oh, I wish I could have invested. I'm like, well, actually, you still can. Um, and then you get more people on your team and kind of more folks that are you know, helping you evangelize this category. So that was maybe something a little different that we did that I definitely am proud of or kind of, you know, happy we did it. And I'm curious how you think about kind of the future. Cause by assumption, like all startups, right? You have some valuation that now you need to grow into and yes. you know, you have some ARR you need to grow and you've, you've built a team. So yeah. How do you sort of think about building Pocus as a business in the future? And yeah. How do you sort of think about like constructing the team thoughtfully along the way? Cause that's obviously like, the quickest way to kind of burn through all, all the capital. So yeah. How do you, how do you think about all that? Yeah. So we've raised. A Series A, like being a year into the company, like before we should have raised a Series A because that's what the market was. Um, so right now, I'm very adamant that we will not raise our Series B until we hit the metrics that set us up for a strong Series B in the 2023-2024. We have in our mind what that looks like in terms of ARR, in terms of growth. We're keeping the team as lean as possible until then. So we're 25 people right now, not going to grow too much until the Series B. Um, and there's a certain kind of number of runway that I won't dip below. So to me, it's like, I am not going to even say the word Series B or think about it until we hit these other milestones, uh, which are kind of ARR as well as different growth metrics, you know, and just keep her low as much as possible. And what's been the hardest part about this journey so far, I mean, being a founder is like mentally exhausting, and then you have to learn all these <laughs> what different do you mean, things. Alex? And we can have a whole uh, therapy session about this, I'm sure. But yeah, I don't know. What is there anything that stuck out that's been like surprisingly hard for you? Yeah, I think the role of being a founder CEO um, for myself it was a lot of rapid learning in, in doing a bunch of roles I never knew how to do. So you're figuring out how to be a founder, a CEO, and a manager, and run maybe sales, marketing, customer success, whatever it is, all at the same time. And my experience was being an individual contributor, sales ops, managing a couple of people. Like that is a big jump and a big learning curve. And so it really is kind of hard <laughs> to learn how to do all these things at once. And I will say it's like putting in the hours, doing the reading, doing the reflection, working. I've worked with an executive coach, which has been incredible. Um, getting feedback from your team. It's like a pretty hard, hard journey. But if you have the right people around you, you can make the learning really, really fun. Yeah. I found it's like, it's just mentally so different than being, because I was early at Lattice. So I thought I kind of like knew what it was like, but then it was, it's so different. It's just like, there's like this existential angst that you have when you're building a company. And then every decision 
just relies on you, right? Like at, at Lattice, I was like, oh, if Jack messed up, it's like, oh, that was his decision. I gave my two cents, but you know, it was, it was his call. Um, but now it's like every little decision I have to live with, with, with the company, whether it's like a product thing or a mishire or whatever it is, like, right. Totally. You have to live with it. And that's like a very different, uh, dynamic than, you know, being an employee. Yeah. Yeah. I try to think about it as reversible and irreversible decisions. The irreversible or the reversible decisions I just make fast, like a marketing campaign or kind of an experiment we want to run. It's like, give me the details. I'll make the decision in five minutes. <laughs> the irreversible of hiring is really the big one. I just like lose sleep for weeks over because I'm like, this can make or break this specific function. And um, that's the, those are the decisions that I think are really emotionally taxing. Is there anything you're doing as a founder that where like you're having the most fun, where you're like trying to carve out time in your day to 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 spend spend time on it? I will say, starting and building focus has been the most fun I've had in my career, one hundred percent. I think my favorite part really is creating a culture that I wish I had at previous companies and building the kind of. I don't know, the community within Pocus where people are excited to be there and learn and grow and um, be given opportunities they wouldn't have otherwise be given at other companies. So I love thinking about the kind of culture, values, people stuff that you get the opportunity to do when you're crafting a company from from nothing. I think my answer, I was trying to think as, as you were talking, is like, I lo- like customer feedback and then actually building the product yeah. of what they're saying and then sharing it back to them. And that magic trick of like, well, I listened to you and then I built exactly what you want. And then seeing their face light up and it that like cool. feedback loop is so, so rewarding. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's been that's fun. I, always, I yeah, like that. Yeah. I'm always trying to spend more time in Figma and playing around. Like it's my first time being like a product manager essentially and making all those calls and stuff. So yeah. It's been good and I've made bad decisions and good decisions, but it's fun to see it kind of kind of play out. Totally. And that's exactly what I was talking about before. Like your background's in marketing and now you have to learn product. And it's like, how are you going to learn it? Well, I have to learn it in one day. <laughs> and so it's just the fast learning cycles are... It's a fun challenge, but it's really freaking hard. Yeah. Yeah. The marketing stuff is like the easy part for me this time around. <laughs> and then it's like, all right, all the other stuff is, is, is way harder. Um, yeah. All right. I'd love to spend kind of like the closing section here, just doing some, some rapid fire around PLG stuff. Uh, and so let's, let's start with like, um, comp plans, uh, for Mm. PLG. Like, is it different for sales teams? Like, do you comp on just like new business expansion, both? Like, what are you typically seeing companies do? Yeah, it's tricky because you need to align the incentives of the sales rep to only go after leads that would not convert on their own or will drive a bigger AR. So the best method I've seen, and I don't think anyone's practiced, is just giving reps a minimum um, kind of ACV that they need to close in order to be confident. So let's say that you are confident that your self-serve deals will close at $5,000 per year. A rep can close that if they think there's expansion potential, but they're only comped when it hits $5,000 in one. And so setting that minimum, um, I've seen a lot of... I see some companies just take the stance of our reps that are really focused on PLG. They don't get comped at all because we don't want to drive that behavior. I've seen others comp them all. I've seen the spectrum. I think the best is having some sort of minimum threshold. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. At Doc, we've been playing around with it. I don't know if it's right. And it's kind of really early, but it's like we, we comp on both new business and expansion in the first year just because it seems like a lot of people with us will start with one or two seats and then it naturally 
you know, evolves from there. And so I've tried to incentivize That's Andy, awesome. who's, who's our one sales rep, uh, you know, to hopefully like grow with, with these companies. Yeah. Right? And, and help them for early stage sales is also a different story. Yeah. No, like OT, it's all, it's all made up, right? Cause you don't have a, you don't have a background of like, oh, you're going to hit quota all the time. Although it's probably made up at a bigger companies too at this point. <laughs> it's all made up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then what is like the PLG tech, tech stack? typically look like when you're working with companies i'd love to know like yeah what is what is the different systems that they're usually tying together and then yeah how does pocus sort of fit into that yep every company will have a crm so salesforce or hubspot a, a data warehouse so most common tends to be snowflake there's bigquery um, redshift that's where you're storing all the product usage data a lot use pocus as well to bridge those two different data sets and have one holistic view and companies will use a, a engagement tool or an outreach tool like Outreach or Sales Launch. And then finally, some enrichment, whether that's Zoom Info or Clearbit. That's kind of the most common stack that I see. Gotcha. And if I'm a product led company and I'm trying to, I'm setting up like kind of my PQLs for, for the first time, like how should I think about that? Like how should I think about, okay, what are those triggers or things in the product mm-hmm. that I should call a, call a PQL? Yeah, I'd say don't over-engineer. A lot of companies will spend six months running some data science project to try to figure out what the perfect PQL is. And it's not going to be the perfect PQL because you don't have enough data to actually determine what the PQL should be. So I would say make a list of 10 hypotheses and pick a couple of those of what you think PQLs could be. Experiment, set time parameters. We're going to say we're going to experiment with these PQLs for the month, see which converted, see which didn't, and then shift from there. So I'd say do not overcomplicate it. You can do it in your existing CRM. You can do it in a tool like Pocus. You can do it in spreadsheets if your team is really, really small. And how do you think about the balance of like customer success and customer support and sales and product led? Because it seems to get blurred, right? Like as yeah. you as you were just saying, like sales is more consultative, maybe more customer successy. Like what does those roles and responsibilities sort of look like? It is. I do think of the sales assist role as just a pre-sales scaled customer success person. So I've seen the kind of blurred lines in a bunch of different ways. Sometimes an AE is responsible for not just new business, but also expansion. But sometimes that could be account managers and sometimes that could be CS. And sometimes CS doesn't focus on that. They just focus on churn prevention. So I've seen a little bit of everything. I think anything works so long as you have clear pools of engagement, which team is focused on which end goal and which leads they should be reaching out to. So there's not multiple people, both an AE and AM and CSM reaching out to the same customer at once because that just kind of looks disorganized. And then when it comes to demand gen and kind of growth and more top of the funnel, is there a specific like yeah growth program that pairs best with mm-hmm. with product-led growth? Hmm. That's interesting. What, what would an example of a growth program be? I would like SEO or oh. uh, things like that or outbound sales, right? Like those sorts of programs. Like, yeah. is, you know, does one of them fit All better? All of the above. <laughs> I think um, PLG companies tend to not want to do outbound. So I would say it's more of the content and community um, play. I do think warm outbound is big of outbounding to your existing users or people who've interacted with your uh, marketing collateral. What I tend to see is there's a big overlap between PLG and community-driven companies as well as lots of content. And then what are some of like the best PLG programs that you've seen out there? And like, if I want to go study a bunch of other companies, are there, are there a few companies that, that come to mind who are, who are doing it really right? 
Yeah, I think Canva 100% is the most impressive PLG business. I probably shouldn't pick favorites, but I will say that has been the most impressive to me. Um, there, there's some impressive stats that they have public about the percent split between sales-led and product-led. And I think everything is from the product, the community, how they've created templates to share the ability to have it both be prosumer and for businesses. They have done an absolutely incredible job. And I'd love to end on just like the future of PLG. Is it here to stay? Do you think things will evolve in the future? I don't know. What do you, how do you think uh, yeah, PLG evolves from here? I think it's there's always going to be a product-led spectrum. You're going to fit somewhere on that spectrum of the Slack to Salesforce. I do think that every single company in the future will have to have some sort of way to try before you buy or get a taste of the product in some way, whether that's an interactive demo, a pilot, or really self-serve. Um, just because it's, you know, people don't want to just be guessing on what they're purchasing. So I do think the future of PLG, it's not like, I know a lot of people like to have opinions of PLG is dead or like PLG is the future. There's no one's going to exist if there's no PLG. I see it hybrid. Like you're going to fit on that spectrum and you're going to have to figure out ways to give customers or prospects the taste of the product before they commit to multi year agreements and partnerships. Well, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation, Alexa. If people want to reach out to you or have questions or want to go buy or demo focus, uh, where, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn or Twitter. Our website is focus.com and you can also join our community on the website and then DM me in Slack. So would love to chat with anyone. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakov. Thank you for listening.